Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 3 of the Faith, Tech, and Space podcast, a little journey down the road of faith formation along with a lot of tech and space. Uh, it's been an interesting discussion this morning on Twitter as I get as I was prepping to do this recording and, and do this episode. Seems like since we've reached the end of the second decade of the 2000s, with uh, the end of 2019 coming up in just a few days, uh, there's been a discussion around Y2K because it's the 20th anniversary of uh, the 1999 New Year's Eve when everybody thought when the year rolled over to 2000 that there was going to be uh, lots of issues with different systems and stuff like that. And in fact, um, it, it wasn't just thoughts. It, there were issues with computer-based systems. I was in the Navy at the time, stationed overseas in Naples, Italy, and we did a tremendous amount of work leading up to Y2K uh, in order to make sure that our systems would be reliable, that they would be available to the fleet so that people out there on the other end, the ships and the shore stations, would get the the voice and data traffic that they needed to get at that time. And of course, a very different world back in those days. It wasn't so much internet as it was just simply data delivery, whether it be in the form of voice messages or uh, or messages themselves, data, you know, text messages. Not SMS, but text-based messaging that we sent out in the Navy. But 20 years since Y2K. And so there's been a bit of a discussion going on on Twitter <clears throat> about whether it was real or not. Was it a hoax? Y2K a hoax? There's a lot of people out there that believe the Y2K scare was a hoax. That it was just to sell new hardware to do, and uh, you know, force upgrades, force people to pay for upgrades and things of that nature. But Y2K was real. The, the, the threat to systems because they had been programmed to use a two-digit year as we approached, because remember, in, the, in 1900, we didn't have computers, right? So two-digit years were not an issue. But as computers came along in in that time frame, you had uh, many of the systems were programmed to just reflect a two-digit year. It didn't take into account the century. So like 1971, it would just look at 71 as the year. So the problem Y2K is you were going to roll over to 2000, zero. Four, four digits, right? Two zero zero zero. So without that that um, identifier to say a four year year and that includes the century now, i.e. the two zero, then systems would roll back to 1901 and it would cause all kinds of havoc and stuff. Well, a lot of work. In fact, in my Twitter feed when I shared this this morning, a lot of people discussing the fact that Y2K was a tremendous amount of work. And the reason why it wasn't such an issue is because of that work. It wasn't that it was a hoax or fake or anything like that. It was because the work was put in to minimize the impact that this had. Lots of testing of hardware, firmware, software, all that stuff. And in fact, it's why we went through Y2K fairly unfazed because of the work that went into it ahead of time. So it's just an interesting perspective of, as we're at that 20-year anniversary of the New Year's Eve of Y2K. So would have, what would have been December 31st, 1999. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what's going on with me with faith and faith formation. Uh, we are on a, a bit of a winter break. Online, we wrapped up our philosophy class a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I garnered a B-plus in that class. I'm very, very happy about that. Uh, our next online class, which I've already registered for, and we start in mid-January here in a couple weeks, will be sacramental theology. So that will be the study of the sacraments of the Catholic Church 
And what we will study is the historical aspect of them, the scriptural basis for them, the church teachings around them, and how it has um, come through the years of the 2,000 years of the church. The other aspect of this class that we will take on is the actual rites, the the process of doing these sacraments. Now, not now deacons, permanent deacons, aren't d- don't do all sacraments. Uh, we can't say the mass, we can't hear confessions, we can't do anointing of the sick. However, we can do baptisms. We can do weddings outside the mass. We can also do, um, uh, oh my gosh, uh, baptisms, weddings, funerals. And we can also do funerals outside the mass. So um, deacons are able to do many of these rites. And that's what we'll be studying for the next, what will be the next 12 to 13 weeks in our next online class, Sacramental Theology. Uh, recent classes locally, which we continue to have an average of about one a month, is in December. We wrapped up with our first homiletics class. Homiletics is about the process of giving homilies. Uh, some would call it preaching, um, but homilies are a little bit different because they're they're intended to uh, not just be a one-way discussion. It's it's intended to be kind of a give folks something to think about, to look at, to examine, and apply to their lives and see how it might impact their lives. So homiletics, our first class of this year, and we've got a couple more scheduled this year, two or three more at least, um, was uh, we had our speaker, our, president, our presenter was a member of Toastmasters International, and she provided us all kinds of great background about public speaking. We did a couple very unique exercises uh, in order to kind of think on our feet which was really insightful. Uh, and now with those tools, we actually will now not do another homiletics class for a couple months because what we have coming up in January and February is canon law. Now, canon law is huge. The, the, the new canon law is about 2,000 pages. And canon law is our church law, right? It's not like civil law. Um, but, it, but, but it pertains to the church and how the church handles different situations. So uh, we will do some studying on that over the next couple of months. And, uh, and then I think we have a, 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 a church history trip and a church history class here in Florida, Florida church history, before we have more homiletics classes and stuff like that towards the end of the year. Um, now, for those of you who might be curious, I've got a link in the show notes to the U.S. Uh, U.S. State, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and their webpage about the permanent diaconate. It will, I had a discussion with someone offline uh, who asked me about that role and what that what a deacon does, and I shared that information with them privately. But this page will give you something to go look at that's right from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops website that explains the permanent diaconate and the roles that permanent deacons have in the church. And then the other thing I've got links here to on the same website from the USCCB is about Advent, which is now over. Advent ended on Christmas Eve, uh, but Advent is that season, that four-week season leading up to Christmas or to what we, we call the Nativity of the Lord, uh, which is on the 25th of December. And now we are in the Christmas season in the Catholic Church. So after the 25th of December, whereas a lot of the secular world takes down their trees, take down their decorations, uh, the Catholic Church observes a period of time called Christmas time, and it goes until the 12th of January. So, for instance, today is Sunday, the 29th of December. We celebrated the Feast of the Holy Family. 
Uh, next week, we will, um, we will observe the epiphany of the Lord. That's the visit of the wise men to the manger in, in Bethlehem. And then the final Sunday of Christmas will be the, the feast of the baptism of the Lord. And then we will start what's called ordinary time the day after that, the 13th of January. And we'll be in ordinary time for about five weeks or so before we begin Advent. But we'll talk about Advent and, oh, I'm sorry, not Advent, Lent the season leading up to Easter. So we'll talk more about that uh, in a show closer to that time frame. So a couple links there for you to read to understand uh, from from my perspective as a Catholic how we approach the season of Christmas as well as the season leading up to Christmas. Um, but I appreciate all the support. I really do. Um, there are eight of us total in my cohort uh, in this first-year group of aspirants for the permanent diaconate. And uh, if, you, if you do pray, we appreciate your prayers most certainly as a group as a cohort as we continue through this journey. All right, let's talk a little bit tech, right? So we're in a lull right now when it comes to tech, when it relates to Windows Insiders, for instance. Um, so let's talk about where we're at when it comes to Windows Insider. So a big thing happened a few weeks ago, and that was that, so Microsoft for a while had been releasing builds to both the fast ring and the slow ring, the same build, right? So we had build 19035 head into the fast and slow ring, um, let me check my numbers here, and then I will... Uh, so we had 19035 that went into both fast and slow. That happened the first week of December. And then six days later, Windows 10 uh, Insider Preview Build 19041 also went into the fast and slow ring. And currently, that is what is in the slow ring. But then, uh, six days later, about a week later... Uh, Windows 10 Insider Preview Build 19536 went into the fast ring. And so this is the new setup now. So so the, the deal with Build 19536 moving forward in the fast ring is this is basically Windows 10 version next. So this is, or, or for short, VNext. That's what I called it in the write-up I did on WindowsObserver.com to kind of explain this and what's going on. So what's happening is you got 19041 in slow ring. That is basically 20H1. That is going to be the first release of 2020. We don't know when that release will be. We think they're really close to final build. They have not formally announced final build, but... 19041 doesn't have a watermark on the desktop, and they'll, they, they tell you in the blog post and the release notes, that doesn't mean we're done. The big difference here is, is that's coming out of the Vibranium uh, channel, development channel, so that Vibranium is the code name for Windows 10 20H1, the first release of next year. 19536 is coming out of the pre-release branch. So this is, this is where the teams are checking in their latest code, the latest changes, and so these are much more bleeding-edge builds. This is something people have been asking for. These builds are coming directly out of the active development branch of Windows 10, and so that's where new features will show up. But here's the big difference, right? Whereas before, we've always been used to these builds leading to the next public release, this is simply... Windows 10 vNext, whatever version that might be, it will see new features, it'll have new features released, it'll have new features removed, and it'll be a test platform, a true test platform. And then at some point down the road, after 20H1 is released in, out of the slow ring and goes into the general availability, then we will see if Microsoft's ready to release their next, their next feature update or cumulative update or whatever it's going to be, they will take and branch off of the pre-release branch that's currently in fast ring, and they will move that into the slow ring and in the branch that will be projected to become that next feature update. Now in 2020, we expect that to be 20H2. We expect that to be released sometime in the fall. 
typically September, October timeframe is what we typically see on the schedule. So that is the new change. So, so fast ring is bleeding edge or, or as bleeding edge as we can get because it's coming directly out of the active development branch. And then the uh, slow ring will be the stable build will be the, the projected release for the next feature update right now. 20 H one is in slow ring and Windows V next is in fast ring. So I suggest you, you sort out your devices. I've taken this time down period over Christmas and the holidays where I'm not working and I have sorted out my test devices and I have two on slow ring. I have two on fast ring or I'm sorry, three on fast ring. And that is going to be my test bed. And that's how I'm going to kind of approach the builds from here on out. And then as things move away, I can shuffle the other devices out of slow, pick up fast, and then pick up the branch off that they do for that. So lots of changes there. Go read the post about 19536. I've got a link in the show notes. So you can go read a little bit about that build and what it is and what it, it's uh, the concept behind it is. You can also go read my Windows 10 VNext Testing Begins post on WindowsObserver.com, and that has some background on it as well, and my, my take on how we're approaching this, uh, this new change in the Insider program. Also in the Insider stuff, Windows 10 Software Development Kit build 19035 came out, and then 19041 came out after that a week later. So the latest SDK is 19041. That's for Windows 10 20H1. And then Windows Server vNext build 19035 came out. That's released about every month. Um, so we, that is where we stand with all the preview builds of Windows 10, whether it be server-side, software development kit, or Windows 10 client. Uh, Edge Insider. So this is the next step. So everybody knows with Edge, we talked about on the last show, the announcement was made that, that the Edge team Microsoft is targeting mid-January for the release of the public availability of Windows 10, uh, or I'm sorry, of Microsoft Edge based on Chromium. So we still don't have a good name to call it. I call it Edge, quote, quote um, parentheses, Chromium or New Edge. Some people refer to it that way or Legacy Edge, New Edge. Um, so the latest builds are out. Uh, let's see, Edge Canary is at 81.0.370.0. Edge Dev is in the 80 channel, 80.0.361.9. And Edge Beta, which is also the release candidate, is 79.0.309.54. That is the latest build in all three development channels. So, of course, Edge Canary is a daily build. Edge Dev is weekly. Edge Beta is about every six weeks, and it is the release candidate. And once they pick the, the public availability build out of Edge Beta, that will become the stable channel, and it will also be on about a six-week release cycle. So it'll probably lag Edge Beta along that line. So I've got links here to the latest on the dev channel, which is 361.5. Uh, well, that post is about .5.9 was a small update. And then also the top feedback from mid-December if you want to go take a look at what people are talking about when it comes to the Edge Chromium builds. So two other things that happened. Edge Dev has now been released for ARM64 devices. So if you went out there and bought yourself a Surface Pro X or you have another ARM-based device, you're definitely going to want to get, and you're using Edge, you're definitely going to, get, going to want to get Edge Developer Channel or even the Edge Canary, which has been out on uh, ARM64 for a, a few weeks, because it is a much better experience on your device instead of using emulation. Uh, some things that are still being worked on, Sync is not fully activated across all the channels. I did notice in my Edge Canary and Edge 
dev channels that sync for favorites is turned on. There are still a handful of issues around this. Some people reporting wildly crazy sync issues. Um, I have very minimal sync issues. Every once in a while, I might get a duplicate entry. I just delete it and move on. But because of a question I got on Twitter, I wrote a, a blog post on windowsobserver.com called Battling Favorite Sync in Microsoft Edge Chromium. And it is the process I used several months ago to clean up whatever cache is out there for favorites. And I started with the Edge Legacy, so that's what was codenamed Project Spartan. That is the kind, that's the version of Edge that comes in Windows 10 and then the Edge Chromium. So I take you through a process I used that has resulted in the best experience for me. Your mileage may vary. I don't know if it will work the same way for you, but it might help you sort things out. So you can take a look at that and maybe tackle your favorite sync while we're waiting on favorites and syncing to work better. Now, the other syncing aspects that have not been turned on across any of the development channels in Edge is extensions. Uh, I think some of them have, um, uh, what, are they, what are they calling that new, oh, collections, and then the, um, so edge, oh, history, so your browsing history is still not being synced across devices, so th they're still working, I, I'm guessing, pretty hard, they do not, I don't think they want to release the public availability stable build of Edge Chromium without having sync on for these things. Now, granted, most of you are, if, if you're listening to this show, you might be a more advanced user and therefore have more channels. But for your everyday user who's just going to have their Edge Legacy Spartan, Project Spartan upgraded to Edge Chromium, probably going to be okay because they're not syncing across multiple devices or multiple channels. But it's something to be watched, okay? So it's something we're keeping an eye on. In the operating system world, let's see. So... As you might know, the reason why we're seeing all these different changes when it comes to Windows 10 and the Insider program is because the Azure organization took over building Windows Core. So you have you have Windows UI experience, user experience and that kind of stuff that's run by Joe Belfiore. He that is available on um, uh, they are outside of the Azure organization, but then you have Azure itself. And they are building the core parts of Windows. So that team is being led by Microsoft Azure Executive Vice President Jason Zander. <clears throat> so when all these changes happened, when when Windows was kind of split up, when Terry Myerson departed last year, and it was split into two different sections, like I said, um, we all kind of wondered what's going on, what's different, how has that changed? Well, Mary Jo Foley has done a really good profile from mid-December a couple weeks ago on Jason Zander and how the Azure organization is approaching building Windows, uh, building Windows 10. And so you get some great insight here about how Microsoft is approaching the development of Windows 10. So check that out. Uh, Windows search bar. So some other things that are going on with Windows 10. Windows search bar. So they've added some more things for answers and Bing visual search has been upgraded. Um, we've got a lot going on this coming month in just a couple weeks. January 14th will be here. That will be the final update patch Tuesday for Windows 7 devices. Unless you're a business that has subscribed and gotten the extended security updates or you've got some other setup where you're getting those updates maybe through Azure because you're using Windows Virtual Desktop, they come with that as well, that, that version of Windows 7. So lots going on there, but it's some great content from EdBot talking about how many PCs will still be running Windows 7 in 2020. So he takes a look at that. Uh, here's what's going to happen to your PC on January 15th. Uh, here's the reality. January 14th is Patch Tuesday. That's the final day of support. There will be one final batch of updates for Windows 7 devices. And then moving forward, there will not be any patches. Now, in the past, Microsoft has patched 
uh, they patched, um, is, is, uh, I think it was Vista, or I can't remember who was the, yeah, Vista. They they did do some patches for unsupported operating systems because they felt like it, it was a serious enough security issue to do that. But don't bank on that for being your only source of support for Windows 7 because Microsoft is under no obligation after the 14th of January to support Windows 7. So it's time to either get your extended security updates or to uh, move on to Windows 10. And right now, all the reporting indicates that the, the upgrade from Windows 7 to Windows 10 using your Windows 7 product key still works. And then once you have that digitally assigned and connected to your Microsoft account on a piece of hardware, you have access to it in the future. So you should be okay there. Uh, what else is going on? There were some reports that Microsoft Security Essential updates were not going to be included in the Windows 7 Extended Security updates. There were reports that Security Essential support was going to end on January 14th as well. If you don't know, Microsoft Security Essentials is the prede predecessor to Windows Defender and Windows 8, uh, the antivirus. But they have come out now and clarified that they will continue to support uh, antivirus signatures and malware signatures for Security Essentials on Windows 7 and supported Windows 7 devices. Other operating system news, we're Chrome OS. I, I'm telling you, if you haven't looked into Chrome OS, I have it running on a, on a Chromebook here so I can keep an eye on it. And they really are starting to build out a feature set that makes it a very viable, low-end, entry-level system for folks. Uh, still doesn't support something like, I, I'd love to see it support OneDrive kind of inherently. I don't think that's going to happen since it's a Google-based system. It's going to support Google Drive. But they are truly adding features that really make a lot of sense to this OS. So if you haven't looked at Chrome OS in a long time, take a look. Facebook is also op working on its own operating system. That one I will just say flat out no right up from the start. I don't use Facebook anymore. I use Facebook for Messenger only to keep in touch with family. But we, we have stopped being active on Facebook for some time. And I guess Facebook still has a WindowsObserver.com page too. Other things that's happened in the last few weeks, the Windows Phone Store shut down. It's gone, no longer available. That's Windows Phone, okay? That's different from Windows 10 Mobile. Um, and then Windows 10 Mobile support has also died off in December as well. So uh, that you are not going to see app updates there anymore. A really good um, blog post from Microsoft's design team uh, posted up on Medium earlier this month talking about the new icon designs that they've done. Um, they have been working on this for a while. We've been watching those new icons roll out. Um, but uh, John Friedman, who's part of the design team, wrote this medium blog post called the Icon Kaleidoscope and talks about the redesign of over 100 icons, new colors, materials, finishes, etc., etc., etc. So you can go check this out and you can even get a sneak peek of the next future Windows logo, Windows 10 logo. Most people in discussing this believes it's the Windows 10X logo. And in fact, if you go back to the October event in New York City, uh, Panos Pane showed off uh, some of the new devices with the Windows 10X on it. Then uh, either me or do I get the two confused every once in a while. But one of them had this new logo on there. It's kind of a, it, it's the standard kind of four pane window at an angle, but it's got different shades in each window pane. Uh, what else? Hyper-V, big part of Windows features. So there's a really good blog post here about Hyper-V and how it powers different features. In Windows 10, so you can learn a little bit about that ground. I mean, obvious ones are things like Windows Sandbox, um, uh, the app protection in the browser, and things of that nature. 
Uh, Windows 10 version 1909 and Windows Server version 1909 release information is now public on Microsoft Docs. So you can go check that out for the October 2019 update. Uh, on the apps and software front, Microsoft has, there was some confusion as Microsoft talked about the upcoming release of Edge Chromium, and they talked about that it would basically hide Edge Legacy. That created a little bit of, uh, 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 of concern for some folks that want to be able to have both or maybe have a transition period. And in fact, they do come out later and talk about how you can use both and access both during that time frame. So I've got a link to a blog post on that. Uh, they did announce the draft security baseline for Microsoft Edge version 79. Version 79, remember the version numbers, that is the beta channel, uh, and that will, is expected to be the stable channel as well when it's once, because beta channel is release candidate, and it's, it's version 79.0. whatever it is, and that will also be the stable channel initial release as well. So the baseline, the security baseline, is for all of you IT administrators out there in order to configure uh, Edge Chromium for your network and make sure you've got good security, a uh, good baseline of security for it. And of course, it's just a baseline, so you can add to or take away from that as you choose. Uh, Microsoft's getting ready to roll out the new Edge, and the way they're going to do it is via Windows Update. It won't be, so what will happen is it will be presented in Windows Update, and if they do it the smart way, they'll present it as an optional update initially and not force people to upgrade their Edge legacy or Project Spartan that came with Windows 10. So the smart move here would be to present it as an optional update like they do with other optional updates in Windows Update and let you click on it and choose to download and upgrade yourself. And I'm sure it's going to be available for separate download. Again, that's part of the idea is that updates to um, Windows 10 will be able to, uh, or to Edge specifically, will be able to be shipped at any time. And in fact, as we know, Canary Daily, Dev Weekly, Betas every six weeks. So, and then Stable Build every six weeks six weeks once it's released. So that will be the new plan. They also want people to start building Edge extensions for the new one. Now we all know that Edge Chromium works with extensions that are in the Chrome web store. That's not a problem. And then of course Microsoft has curated their own collection of extensions that are in their own Edge Chromium uh, extension store. So if you want to get started with building your own extensions or upgrading your current extensions, there's ways to do it. It's a fairly straightforward process, and Microsoft has now opened up the, the floodgates and said to everyone who does extensions, come on down, build them, let's get them ready because we're coming up to release. So I fully expect that Microsoft will have an extensive uh, collection of extensions. Uh, right now, the extensions in the Microsoft Store on Windows 10 are all tied to Edge Legacy. What I expect to happen here is that they should put in, right now the Edge Chromium extensions are all listed on a web page. Uh, what I would expect to happen is that that may become a channel or a, or a, a, a tab in the Microsoft Store on Windows 10 so that you can update those and get those automatic uh, through, the, uh, through the store process. Uh, collections, getting started with collections here in Microsoft Edge improved tracking prevention in Microsoft Edge, and then Microsoft Edge is also gaining new uh, progressive web application features like uh, title bars that are colored coded to the uh, primary color on the web page. So lots of work going on in Edge, lots of content to read up about Edge. So if you are, or if you're tracking on that, go read those stories because it will give you a great amount of insight into how they're approaching the general availability of Edge Chromium and how it will become the new norm for Windows 10. 
and of course other systems too, right? It's going to be on supported Windows 7, Windows 8.1, uh, uh, Linux version coming, and of course it's on Mac. All right, Android users, your phone. So the your phone Windows 10 your phone app can now be have calls can do calls on PC on any Android device. So that was in testing for a while, but that's a big update. Your phone app now supports pin input. So if you're on a on a device with a, a touchscreen or a pin that you can do input on, you can now do input to your phone to the app on your desktop through that tab or to your phone through that tablet or through that interface using the pin and stuff like that. So that's a big deal. Um, it's the end of the decade, like I mentioned, so there's a lot of kind of look back stuff going on, and I haven't published a bunch, I haven't brought in a bunch of those links here, but there is a look back at the top app and games of the decade, and that was written by App Annie. If you're not familiar with App Annie, she, she can look at uh, different stuff on iOS, Android, and different places like that, and so it's a great website to kind of pick up some, uh, some understanding and background. Just to give you an idea, the top five apps worldwide in 20 from 2010 to 2019 for all-time downloads, Facebook number one, Facebook Messenger number two, WhatsApp Messenger number three, Instagram number four, and then Snapchat. So one, two, three, four of those top five are all from Facebook. And then that follows up the second half of the top ten is Skype, TikTok, UC Browser, YouTube, and then Twitter. So if you want to go read more into those numbers and things like that, you can click on the link for that one in the show notes page. Um, Apollo 11 mission uh, augmented reality project samples are now available on the Unreal Mar Engine marketplace. This is some cool Apollo 11 stuff. You may remember Microsoft, I think it was a build this year, that had a demo that kind of went south, but they got it back online afterwards. But it lets you kind of look at the Saturn V rocket and the launch and how the stuff works. This is some of those... Um, Augmented reality project samples are now available on the Unreal Engine marketplace. So if you're using one of those devices, you can check out those 3D uh, augmented reality images. Microsoft, a lot of confusion as we're coming to the end of support for Windows 10 Mobile and about the Office UWP apps because they were primarily for mobile devices, especially on the phones in Windows 10 Mobile. Well, they initially said they weren't going to be supported anymore come in January 2021. And have since come out and said, yes, we will continue to support the Office UWP apps on Windows 10 tablets in 2021. Um, I actually use those on this device. I'm on my podcaster. And I actually use all, I use Word Mobile, Excel Mobile, PowerPoint Mobile uh, on my this desktop machine. So they are still supported. They're still in the store. I don't know how easy the listings are to find, but they're in my library history. And you can install them. I use it. I don't do a whole lot of work on this podcasting machine except for recording the podcast and so it has the tools on it I need for that running Windows 10 um, but having access to things that will open documents and things of that nature is real handy so if you have a tablet and you're running Office UWP apps you're still going to be supported beyond January 2021. Uh, Microsoft Teams they released the Linux client, client a couple weeks ago so I know one of my co-workers who is pure Linux um, beyond her work laptop of Windows 10 will is now on using Microsoft Teams on the uh, actual Linux app that's available for that. I need to pull out my Linux device. I'm running Linux Mint on a the old um, the first S Spectre X360 from HP that's like five four years old now, but it's a great Linux device and I need to pull it out and install the Microsoft Teams app and see how that works. 
moving on in to talk about a few services and stuff like that. Uh, Wonderlist is officially being shut down. Uh, if you remember, Microsoft acquired Wonderlist a couple years ago. Uh, since then, Todo has replaced Wonderlist. Um, it's not quite feature parity yet, but it's really close, and I think that's where they're moving to. But uh, the date of it is Microsoft To Do is the go-to app for lists and coordinating and stuff like that and co collaboration. May 6, 2020 will be the shutdown date for Wonderlist. So that's about six months away, four and a half, uh, five and a half months away. So if you are a Wonderlist user, it's time to make a move. That move Microsoft wants you to make is to Microsoft To Do. And it has gotten really good. I mean, Microsoft To Do early on was a bit of a challenge uh, because it lacked a lot of features, but it has slowly picked up. Uh, while it might not be 100% feature parity with Wonderlist, it has gotten very close, and I think they're continuing to make that effort. I think their plans will have that very close on by the time the first week of May is here. Uh, if you want to look back at the Google Cloud platform in 2019, I've got a link here to their cloud-covered look back. Uh, we heard that Ericsson is going to build its connected vehicle cloud on top of Microsoft's connected vehicle platform. So that's a big deal for Microsoft's uh, connected vehicle stuff. Um, privacy is a big deal. And Google, who is not well known for the privacy efforts, did publish a blog post about how they put people back in control of their privacy. So I thought I would link to that. And then also a look back at G Suite over the last 2019 so and where they're headed um, to look at that. And then connected home over IP. This is a new project that's Amazon, Apple, Google, and the Zigbee Alliance that they're going to develop a connectivity standard. So Apple's involved, Google's involved, Amazon's involved. This is huge because right now that is such a wild, wild west depending on what, what plug you get, what smart home plug, smart home light, smart home whatever that you get might or might not be compatible across all these assistants and all these uh, digital devices that are out there to control them. So the idea behind this new project is to create a standard that will be used across the board and now you'll have freedom of choice, but you'll be able to do the control that you need and not be tied to something. This is significant for Apple because for Apple, that's their, that's their uh, I, I forget what Apple calls their smart home uh uh, what they what they call their smart home uh, devices. Hang on a minute. Let me look here. Uh, do they call it connected home? Is that what it's called? And that's what the project is called. Um, I'm not as sure. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, let's see. It says, bah, 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 bah. yeah, connected home is what they're calling the project. So maybe that's what Apple called. I'm not sure. I just think it's great that some big players in this field are coming together to develop an industry standard. That will be massive for the end user when it comes about. Spotify users in the U.S. can now play podcasts through Amazon Alexa. I've tried it. I've got podcasts on Spotify, including this one, and I'm yet to get Alexa to properly activate and play an episode of this podcast. Maybe it just takes some time, but it, it, uh, it is available for you in your Amazon Alexa app if you want to connect. If you're already connected to Spotify, you, I think there's a separate step to connect Spotify for podcasts, which I have done. I've still not had any success in getting Faith Tech and Space to show up when I asked for it. Uh, Google's also done some work this year in their messaging app with verified SMS and spam protection. So they're making more effort to make it safer for you for your SMSing and stuff like that. Uh, Google Chrome, they've now integrated the compromised password list from um, Have I Been Pawned in order to tell you whether or not you are using a password that has been compromised before. 
And then the other big thing we saw from Google in the last few weeks is that they're starting to do what they call feature drops. So you know they're out, I think their current model of Pixel is Pixel 4. And what they're starting to do is some of the features that were only on Pixel 4 initially are now being backported down to Pixel 3 and earlier Pixel devices. So if you like some of that stuff, you can expect to see that on the older models, which I think is great. It gives more longevity to those older models and give people choice there. And then Twitter and Facebook's race to the bottom. This headline just caught my eye. It's kind of it kind of talks to the fact about the, the companies and their 2010s and how it went for them and how how they were trying to 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 put themselves in place and the chaos it created by the different methods that they took in the approach. So a really really good read there if you want to understand how social media on Twitter and Facebook sites have both really not helped things out. Don't get me wrong, there is good to be had on those platforms, but unfortunately the negativity overrules that in many, many cases. Um, Hardware-wise, Apple's new Mac Pro went on sale a few weeks ago. The top-end model, just in case you're curious, $52,599. That is what the top-end Mac Pro will cost you. This is the one that looks like a cheese grater. It's got the holes in the front panel. Um, but I tell you what, the looking at some of the take-aparts on this, like iFixit, the modularness of that computer system inside the box is pretty amazing. I would love to see PCs pick up a little bit of that modularness. I, having been someone who builds PCs, that would be a tremendous upgrade in some cases of doing up uh, builds, doing our own builds. Uh, the OnePlus, OnePlus 7T Pro 5G McLaren review, I talked about this phone last show. I'm really continuing to enjoy it. I just want to touch 5G. We don't have 5G in my area except for about 90 minutes away. I thought a couple weeks ago since I had to take a trip up there that I would get to see 5G on the phone. But it turns out there's a setting in the phone that you have to toggle on so it will switch to 5G if it sees 5G. So right now the greater Jacksonville area does not have 5G. They're still waiting on uh, some of the TV stations to clear out of the 600 megahertz band. And then we should see 5G start to roll out. And of course if the Sprint merger happens, this phone is built to take the Sprint um, uh, uh, 5G network as well. So that's that mid-range 2.5 gigahertz band and we should be able to see that as well. Uh, T-Mobile's that 5G is on Google Fi now. Uh, Rich Woods from Neowin stuck his Google Fi SIM into the McLaren 5G, the 7T Pro, and it worked on Google Fi. So he wrote a story up about that. He's got a, his Surface Laptop 3 15-inch unboxing and first impressions and not added in here for links, but he recently did the, uh, the Surface Pro 7 and the Surface, uh, what was the other one? Yeah, Surface Pro 7 was also in there and his Surface Pro X unboxing and first impressions. Um, and then there is a patent floating around that's talking about some Surface Book and Surface Pro changes coming. Um, we haven't heard anything new on Surface Book since 2 came out and since the upgrade to 2 came out. But there is everything points to the fact they're going to do a Surface Book 3. I just personally, with seeing the performance of the Surface Laptop 3, I don't know... I honestly don't know how many time, how many people use that detachable screen on the Surface Book. I barely ever use it. I know I'm a unique user, but I talk to many people, and a lot of people very rarely remove it. So if Microsoft knows those numbers, likely switching over to a full-blown clamshell might be the right move for them, and then start to beef up those internals and stuff like that. Uh, the PC is dead. Long live the cloud PC. This is ZDNet writing again. This is Stephen J. Von, Vick, Von Nichols. And he writes about Linux and open source, but he, oh, come on there, ZDNet, don't autoplay your video. 
Um, so he is writing about the desktops being replaced by cloud-based PCs. And that's not unlike Windows Virtual Desktop, okay? But you still got to have a device to get that through. So the, the endpoints are not going anywhere anytime soon. Dawn of a Decade, the top 10 tech policy issues for the 2020s. This is a really good write-up by um, Brad Smith, Microsoft president. And he talks about those top 10 issues being sustainability, defending democracy, journalism, privacy in the AI era, data and national sovereign, sovereign oh my gosh, sovereign, sovereign, I can't say it, sovereignty, sovereignty, there you go, digital safety, internet inequality, a tech cold war, ethics and AI, and then jobs and income inequality in an AI economy. So he writes about those and talks about each one. Uh, let's see. Sale of Samsung Galaxy Fold tops 1 million units, and then shortly thereafter, Samsung has not sold 1 million Galaxy Folds after all. So the, the world of foldables and plastic screens still do not do very well. Again, I'm convinced that Microsoft and others who are looking at dual screens that are attached by a hinge that interact with each other and an OS that in enhances that experience is the future of foldable devices. Foldable plastic screens are just not going to be durable, I don't think. But we will continue to watch and see what happens here, especially with Neo and Duo from the Surface line. In the gaming world, we heard the announcement, surprised everybody uh, at the Game Awards, that the C Xbox Series X, Xbox being the console, Series X being the model. Okay, that's how that works. That will be available a little less than a year from now, holiday 2020. So I expect that will be sometime in September of October of this coming year. Uh, console versus cloud. Um, we've got a new support site for Xbox. Stadia, Google Stadia, is still trying to to, to survive its very rough and, and uh, unsettled launch. Not many games, older games available, while Microsoft's Project X Cloud keeps growing, and that, that continues to add new games. Um, my favorite, One of my favorite games, Forza Horizon 4, got a 72-player Battle Royale mode called Eliminator. A lot of fun if you like Forza Horizon 4 and you like the idea of Battle Royale. This is a little different approach to it where you drive head-to-head -head and challenge people as the, as the zone gets smaller. Uh, you start with 75, yeah, 72 players. That's right. Uh, Halo fans, new and old. Uh, Master Chief Collection landed on PC. It has made Steam's top 12 of the year. Uh, it has just taken off Halo, uh, Halo Reach on PC. has just been a terrific success. Uh, Microsoft uh, Minecraft crossplay has come to PlayStation 4 or is coming to PlayStation 4. And then for my old Commodore 64 self, the full-size Commodore 64 hardware is launching soon, they say. I'm watching. I'm waiting. That was, that was my first real quote-unquote computer. I learned a lot on Commodore 64 basic-wise and, and programming and typing in page after page of code to, to get a game from a print magazine. Um, lots of fun to be had there. But the big news is the Xbox Series X announcement, I think, when it comes to gaming. Because that basically that was Project Scarlet. What we knew is Project Scarlet. It might, no, I'm thinking of something else. Yeah, Project Scarlet, right? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. that. Oh my gosh, now I'm doubting myself. Um, it was, uh, let me see, Xbox Series X... I thought it was Project Scarlet, but I thought Project Scarlet also came out. Um, now I'm not sure. Hang on a minute. I am going to check something. Okay. Yeah, I was right. Project Scarlet. 
and that is Xbox Series X. So this will be out next year. It is a new shape, so it stands up, and there's been a lot of memes about the, the shape and look of it. We haven't seen a physical device. We've just seen renders, um, but it should be interesting to see this finalize its development. Uh, and the and the juice it's going to bring into the gaming experience is just going to be something else. Now, on my own Xbox experience and journey, I recently upgraded to Xbox One X. Now, I haven't been public about this because I did it just before Thanksgiving, um, and it replaced my Xbox One S, which ended up being gifted to my daughter's family uh, so that they can use that to replace their Xbox 360 that uh, they got a few years ago from us. But um, the Xbox One X is a tremendous upgrade. So the reason I went Xbox One initially was kind of, you know, I went late in the game. And then Xbox One S was the upgrade that gave me HDR once I had an HDR 4K capable TV. But again, Xbox One S does HDR, not 4K. And now the Xbox One X not only brings more power and more performance and the Xbox One X enhanced aspect of things, but it's 4K. And so all of my favorite games like Forza Horizon 4, Madden, and others like that got those enhanced graphics and stuff. And it is just unreal, the, the that experience, that look, and that the, the way it performs. I mean, you can turn off your Xbox One X and bring it up, and you don't have to restart a game from scratch because it's still preserved in in RAM, I guess, in some kind of RAM or a quick startup box or, or container that gives you back right into the game immediately almost so you don't have to go through the startup. And startup and transitions and, and moving from, from screen to screen and from phase to phase of these different games is much faster because of the uh, performance levels on the device. So it's been a really good experience, and I'm enjoying that. So I will, I will be on Xbox One X for a while. This is the way I approach things. I do those up, those generational upgrades late in the game. In fact, I got a great deal on the Xbox One X, and it came with um, the the new Jedi Fallen Warrior, Fallen, Jedi, Fallen Jedi game for $350 for Black Friday from Best Buy, and I had earned that money um, it, through blogging uh, events that I did for, uh, for the Best Buy Influencer Program. So it was tax out of my pocket, and I had the upgrade. So that is what I am working on right now. Across miscellaneous tech stuff, uh, phishing, some, some new updates about phishing from Microsoft, about how that has evolved over time, how Office 365 advanced threat protection detects malicious URLs and email attachments, and how they prevent them from ever reaching inboxes. So if you want to understand how Microsoft has evolved this process, you can check that out. Uh, Microsoft researched their 2019 reflection and talking about how they've approached some of the quote-unquote technology's toughest challenges. And then Financial Times named Satya Nadella Person of the Year. Uh, there's no doubt that Satya has led the company to some great uh, uh, to some great success. Stock price, the whole bit, value value of the company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I know there are different takes on this from people depending on your perspective. Many consumers, enthusiasts especially, feel like Microsoft has abandoned the, the consumer, whereas uh, they seem to focus everything on Azure and business. But they are in business to do business and need to do business. And so the changes that he has made or that he has carried on from the pre his predecessor, uh, uh, Steve Ballmer, have proven to be successful to the company overall. Otherwise, investors would not be, you know, the stock would not be so valuable. So they're doing good stuff. All right, the end of tech. Let's talk a little bit of space tech stuff, okay? Um, so the space station had a couple of uh, U.S. and Russian cargo ships arrive. So they got new gear, new, new medical, new science from those. SpaceX uh, has got an abort 
test launch update. So they have determined that January 11th, it, that SpaceX's in-flight abort test will be no earlier than January 11th, 2020. And this will happen from Kennedy Space Center from Launchpad 39A, which is the one uh, SpaceX has leased from NASA. This That's the old shuttle and Apollo uh, launch pad. They, so this in-flight abort test is, is, I think, the last step that they really have to do to demonstrate that they have the capability of keeping the crew safe during an in-launch abort. So that will happen. They've done the static fire stuff. They've done the parachute test. They've done all this. And they did have a successful orbital flight test, remember, where they, they went up and docked with the ISS and was able to complete their, their launch and landing and all those kind of things. So that's where SpaceX is at. That's the next thing for SpaceX is um, launching that in-flight abort test. And then on the Boeing side, so Boeing did attempt their orbital flight test launch. They did launch. However, there was an issue during launch where they picked up the mission elapsed timer from the, the wrong time. I guess they get that from the booster of the Falcon 9, but they did not blame SpaceX for the error. It was, it was, uh, it was Boeing took on that error. It, the clock was off by like 11 hours. So at a time when the capsule should have been firing to do its um, uh, orbital insertion born because they use a, so they're using a new profile when it comes Boeing and United Launch Alliance is using a much flatter launch profile to have less G's for, for in case they have to recover the astronauts need to abort and it will be less G's for them to have to deal with uh, as opposed to say the old school uh, or the SpaceX launch arc that they use or the shuttle launch arc to go to station as much more has a much more vertical angle and therefore more G's so they did the, the flat, the launch with the new launch trajectory. And then what's supposed to happen shortly after the capsule is separated from the second stage of the SpaceX Falcon 9, it's supposed to do an orbital insertion burn. burn. Well, what happened was because the mission elapsed timer was off by 11 hours, the capsule didn't think it was time for that. So it didn't do the burn, but the reaction control system that helps control the spacecraft on that burn, the alignment, went off and it used up a bunch of fuel so they by the time they got things under control they there was a tedris uh the the data and relay satellite network there was a tedris black hole where they kind of didn't have any connectivity to manually order the burn uh it was too late so they at that point they once they evaluated things they realized they didn't have enough fuel to do the space station and so they they had to abort that part of the mission but they were able to check off many many other aspects of the orbital flight test including a successful recovery of the spacecraft uh, at white missile uh, white miss uh, the white sands missile range in uh, Utah so lots of things accomplished short of the the rendezvous with the International Space Station so uh, there's a lot of discussion going on about why that happened they're doing the work to fix it and sort it out um, I've got links to the NASA statement on the orbital flight test by Boeing and then I've got the end of kind of this was the end of the Starliner flight test and here's what we were able to accomplish so you can take a look at that stuff and understand what they're doing and what's going on with that um, on the NASA front specifically, they recently had a social media event called Artemis Day where they showed off the, the core space launch system, SLS core, four-engine core, that is going to launch the first Artemis spacecraft um, into, into space. Then they also published a new ebook that revealed insights of Earth as seen from the night sky, from night from space. 
And uh, two other things that are going to happen I thought was interesting. One was the Apollo Flight Controller 101. So you can understand all those consoles that were controlled by Apollo were in the midst of the 50th anniversary of Apollo. So uh, Microsoft, NASA is publishing a lot of information related to the Apollo uh, era. And then the final one is Astrina Chris, astronaut Christina Cook just made history. In fact, I think it's today she has surpassed Peggy Whitson for the longest single space flight by a woman, uh, 288 days or so, I think, or maybe 300, but she's still got two months, two more months on orbit. This is her first space flight, and so she's become the longest ever woman in space in a single space flight, but by the time she leaves in a couple months, she will have accumulated more space time uh, than any, either any woman or any astronaut. So she's, she's up there making history uh, every day now. And then closing out some things, I wanted to tell you that scams are a big deal. I mentioned scams and phishing earlier in the show. Microsoft actually has a, a, a form that if you get one of those tech support phone call scams, you can actually go to that form on Microsoft's website and report it. Give them the number, give them as much detail as you can, and they will tackle that and approach trying to shut that down. Unfortunately, it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole, so it's hard to beat it all down. But every little bit will help, and it will stop it from happening to somebody else. And then the other thing is that, you know, a lot of early on in the days of security on the Internet, we a lot of discussion was had around the, looking for the lock on your toolbar, right? The lock on your toolbar, that green lock, was always indicated to be the safe way, right? That's safe browsing, that's secure connection between you and the endpoint. But, it, but there is a, a level of a trust factor excuse me, a trust factor with that lock that has to come into play. So you could still have a lock in your toolbar, or, you know, that lock, but it might not be a safe site on the other end. More and more spammers and fishers and stuff like that are using HTTPS to give this false sense of security to get a, a real security certification, but it's for a fraudulent site. So you have to pay to attention to other things. And this article from Dark Reading from Curtis Franklin Jr. Uh, has great insight about how they're using that and how you can better protect yourself when it comes to being safe on the web. Okay, that's the end of episode three. I want to close out and just wish everybody the happiest of New Year's and continued Merry Christmas during this Christmas season. Uh, 2020 holds a lot to happen, a lot to kind of see and, and do. Be safe as you celebrate these final uh, days of the holiday and the Christmas season and New Year's here in a few days. And we will see you next month with a new episode of Faith, Tech, and Space. And this podcast is it's a journey along the faith formation, looking at a little bit of tech and space along the way. So until next time, blessings, everybody. Mm-hmm.